This episode was brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 141. Hello there, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. And I am here in the virtual studio today with Dr. Ada Palmer. Ada is a professor of history at the University of Chicago, specializing in Renaissance history and the history of ideas. She composes and performs a cappella folk music with the group Sassafras. Her debut fiction series is called Terra Ignota. The first book in the series, Too Like the Lightning, was the 35th winner of the Compton Crook Award and was shortlisted for the 2017 Hugo Award for Best Novel. The second book in the series is called Seven Surrenders, and it is on sale now. Ada Palmer, welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. Thank you. Yes, I just got back from the Compton Crook Award ceremony this weekend. It was fabulous because um, Balticon is the convention that awards that award. And because I grew up in Annapolis, that's been my home con since I was 11. It's the first time a local person has won it like that. So there was this wonderful sort of home spirit teamwork of, yes, we raised her and now she's doing this. So it was a lot of fun. Oh, that is too cool. Balticon's been my home convention since about 2007, just because that's where all the podcast fiction authors tended to congregate. (laughs) Yes. For the actual ceremony, I wore my Balticon 28 t-shirt from when I was very small. (laughs) Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the world of Terra Ignota and how this series came to be? Sure. Uh, So this is set in the 25th century in which a global network of super fast flying cars makes it possible to get from anywhere on Earth to anywhere else on Earth in about two hours. When you have that, it sort of collapses the whole world socially into commuting distance because it's perfectly reasonable to live in the Bahamas, work in Tokyo, have lunch in Paris, while your roommate also lives in the Bahamas but works in Antarctica and has lunch in Buenos Aires. And that's all sensible commuting distance. So in a social sense, it collapses the world into more like a city and its suburbs than separate communities in which areas of geographic and cultural concentration operate a lot more like a Chinatown or a little India within a large city that's constantly five minutes away from all other cultures. As a result of this, the society doesn't have geographic nations anymore because that a degree of mobile populace, geographic nations doesn't make any sense. People live where it was convenient to buy real estate and they work where the jobs are. So instead, there are non-geographic nations where people sign up for which nation they want to be a part of, which nation's laws they find reflect their values. And then no matter where on earth you are, you're governed by your laws and protected by your government, while your next door neighbor or even your roommate or spouse may have a different law. So it's a very internationally mixed world in which all countries are pretty evenly geographically distributed in all cities all around the world. And everyone lives kind of like an expatriate lives now, dealing with the local regulations of the city that you're in, and then your own personal law from your homeland rather than a local law. That is really cool. What tools and techniques did you use from your your training in history that helped you imagine this setting? 
Yeah, so I think I go about world building in a very historian kind of way, which has two special elements. One is that I tend to do a lot of extrapolation forward, but not forward from now, forward Mm -hmm. from a couple hundred years ago. And I look at the question of, you know, what has been changing a lot recently and is clearly unstable. So, for example, we're very accustomed to the isolated nuclear family as the contemporary family unit. But that's actually a very young family unit. It only developed in the 20th century to be the norm and is already destabilizing in a number of different ways as we're seeing demographics shift. If you go back 100 years, we had very different normal family units, which would consist of an extended family within a house or often multiple families within a house where you have the family that owns the house and then servants or servant families who work for that family and also dwell in the same space. So thinking in that term, I thought it's not realistic for the nuclear family to persist unchanged forward since it is itself so young and so dynamic. So I thought about what other developments that might take. And I thought the same way about which are the dominant languages of the world, how we organize our justice system in terms of thinking about it as a deterrence-based justice system versus a retribution-based justice system. These are all things that have changed completely in the last 200 years. So it makes sense for them to continue evolving in the next 200. So taking a couple centuries ago as the baseline instead of the present as the baseline makes me question a lot of cultural, social, and political institutions that people who take the present as their baseline don't think to question. Uh, So that's one of them. I also, as a historian, like to ask a whole lot of nitpicky, detailed questions about a culture that people don't necessarily think to ask, like, how does the currency work? Or which are the basic staple crops? And how rurally are distributed are the people who farm them? Are there resident rural farming communities or has this ceased to be a separate culture due to the transportation network? Which crops do they farm the most of? And does that concentrate wealth in particular geographic regions that are good at producing those crops? You don't necessarily see me discuss any of these questions in the book. But uh, yeah, I've done 10 times as much world building as fits in the stories. Because as a historian, I'm not satisfied until this world is as thoroughly worked out as the historical periods that I'm used to reading about. That makes sense. What systems or tools do you use to keep track of this research and organize everything? I've got a lot of spreadsheets. <laughs> I've got a lot of timelines. I have a detailed like eight-page timeline of major events in the history of the world from 2000 to 2454. I have a giant customized Google map in which I have pins in every city in the world with a population over 10 million with notes on the political history of that city and the demographics of that city in 2454. I have grids of all of the characters sort of color-coded, and then I have outlines which are color-coded so that the characters' names pop up so I can zoom out until the outline is tiny and just see it as a palette of colors and look at how, oh, there's not very much green in this section. Was it intentional that this character doesn't appear in this section? And I use a program called OneNote, which is a note-taking program that lets you easily have graphics, text, and spreadsheets all in one sort of muddled space so that you can type on top of graphics easily or plunk graphics in the middle of a spreadsheet or plunk a spreadsheet in the middle of a paragraph. And I use that to make vast, disordered reams of notes uh, about the society. 
It's one oh, of the okay. programs that comes free with Microsoft Word that nobody ever uses. Got it. Except for you. <laughs> so is OneNote a tool that you brought with you from your history research then? Or is that something a you learned friend, how to do as a writer? No, a friend brought it to my attention who is a, actually a Japanese translator. She's the translator who oversees anime translation for Funimation. And she uses it for keeping track of complicated translation projects and the flow of which translator is working on which anime at any given time. Nice. So when you're crafting a story, do you start from the world building and then imagine the plot that works in that setting? Or do you come up with the plot first and then build the world around the needs of the plot? Uh, the characters and world usually develop together so that I'll have a concept for a person who does this particular thing in this world. So I'll have a palette of people and the world and places and so on growing together. And then the logical interactions of those people or the ways in which it would be exciting for those people to put pressure on one another will then generate the plot. Got it. So you said that your characters and your world building develop together. What processes do you use to create your characters? Do they sort of start talking to you in your head as you're envisioning this world? Or do you plan them out specifically to fulfill roles in the story? They usually begin with an idea for an interesting moral situation a person could face or an idea for an interesting emotional experience that a person could be having, whether a special kind of intensity or decision-making or joy. Often it'll be a particular mood that makes me think of this. It might be a piece of music or a piece of art or just how beautiful the sky is. Uh, and then I'll get this idea and then think, okay, what character would need to exist to feel this in this way? Or what set of relationships would this character have to have to be put in this exact moral dilemma? And then the character will often be born from that emotional climax, which will then become one of the things that that character does, though whether at the beginning, middle, or end of our encounter with that character evolves over time. What tools do you use as a writer to keep track of character traits or qualities, or do you keep all that stuff in your head? Characters are just in my head, pretty much. I sometimes write down, you know, middle names, ancestry, uh, details about who went to college where, anything I think is namey and therefore likely to slip through my head. But pretty much the characters I don't need to take notes on. I take notes on dates, locations, population ratios, political details. How did the Senseiers come into existence? What was the genesis for that idea? I was interested in exploring a tension that I often perceive among friends that I hang out with, most of whom are the kind of liberals that one encounters in college of the East Coast, where there's this sort of dual desire on the one hand for religious freedom to take the form of religion not showing up in politics, of people not talking about it, of conversations being sort of religion-free and us having this peaceful, secular space. And also, at the same time, wanting religious freedom to mean anyone can do whatever they want religiously. And there is a tension between that. You can't both have silence and religion never come up in your daily life and never, never feel like it's intruding itself upon your reality and also have everybody have the freedom to practice religion, or at least you can. But these two are in very delicate balance with each other. And so the Senseier system, which is the system wherein public discussion of religion and public practice of religion is illegal, but everyone is expected to have a private religion, which you only practice on your own, 
is very polarizing, intentionally polarizing for people who read the book. Because some people who read the book read that and think, oh my God, that would be the best religious system ever. Because everyone would have a rich religious life if they want to and spiritual guidance and no one would ever be shoving religion down their kids' throats without the kid wanting this. But everyone would be able to explore it freely on their own. It wouldn't interfere with politics, but it would be absolutely free. Hooray. And other people look at that and say, oh my God, this is so oppressive. We couldn't get together for our family holiday. We couldn't mention religion in the course of an ordinary lunch conversation. We couldn't have a necklace with a pendant on it with a holy symbol on it. And I intentionally wanted to craft something that when people read it and had those opposite reactions, where this felt like paradise to some readers and like oppression to other readers, it would throw into relief that there is this tension between those two different modes of how to define religious freedom. And that for us to have a stable and productive conversation about what religious freedom means in a modern society, we have to acknowledge that potential tension and try to figure out how to make a world of religion that can both be expressed and yet also make people comfortable who don't want to have religion forced on them. Uh, so I wanted to stimulate conversations between readers who had those opposite reactions. And have you been dragged into any of those conversations or facilitated any of them? I mean, I've, I've had them with friends or watched friends have them in a room. And my, my roommates are fond of looking at forums where they see these conversations play out as well. But I haven't myself advocated a side. I'm advocating discussing the fact that this tension exists. Because there are wonderful things about the Senseiro system. The idea that everybody can have a, a signedly neutral religious counselor that you can go to and say, here are some of my religious ideas. Please give me some books that relate to these religious ideas. Please help me explore what theologians from all parts of the world have said about these ideas so that I can develop my beliefs. That would be great. And it works equally well for a member of any religion or for an atheist who can say, I want to engage with the debates pro and con atheism and enrich my skill as an articulator of atheism. That would be so cool. But on the other hand, it's also oppressive if it's partnered with one of the elements this book has, which is severe censorship of religious discourse and in fact of many kinds of discourse. Yeah, there's this really interesting bit at the front matter of the book mm -hmm. where you go into this rigid scoring system about all of the things in this book that tender readers may find objectionable. Right. And it, it talks about the level of violence and the level of sexual content and the level of religious content as if those three things are equivalent. And it also lists the long list of boards that have had to certify this for publication. And I love that page partly because it does reams of world building all at once. When you know what powers have the authority to censor something in a culture, you have learned a lot about that culture. And when you see that this book had to be published with permission from the Mitsubishi Executive Directorate and the King of Spain, you learn a lot about the importance and power of unexpected things in this world before you even get to what is, you know, the first sentence of the actual narrative. That page is based on 18th century books and 17th century books, which had this requirement that they have permission on the continent, in France and in Italy and in a few other places. You had to have permission from an authorizing body before you were allowed to print anything. And so this copies that. But another thing that that page does is immediately throw people into the debate over, is this a utopia or is this a dystopia? 
because mm-hmm. we feel instinctively that a society with censorship cannot be a utopia. That censorship is bad and is so thoroughly enmeshed with dystopia in our heads. But on the other hand, it's a pretty great world with a 20-hour work week and you can live in the Bahamas and have lunch in Paris and everyone seems to be pretty well off and having a lot of fun and has a 150-year lifespan and very little disease and practically no poverty. No, there's no poverty at any point even discussed. I've worked out details of economics and there is a kind of poverty, but Sorry, this is a tangent. Uh, but it's a you know, for practically everybody, except for the people who have some kind of particular conflict with the oppressive elements of it, it's a pretty great world compared to any world that has ever actually existed on Earth, right? You know, our society is far from perfect. This society is far from perfect, but it's got some pretty good things in it. So it feels like a utopia, but it also feels like a dystopia because it has censorship and because it has religious oppression. And so all the time on message boards, I see people talking about, is this a dystopia or is it a utopia? And the answer, of course, is that it has elements of both. And I tried to do that because I feel that if we go forward in time and see the year 2454, that's what it'll feel like. Just like if somebody from 300 years ago came forward in time and saw now, I think it would feel like a mixture of utopia and dystopia because so many amazing things would be the case. We have an average 80-year lifespan. We have machines that do our laundry for us. We have fruit all year, fruit that you can just go to the store and buy all year Fabric costs nothing. You don't have to save up for a whole year to buy a new suit of clothes. All of these things are utopian from the perspective of the past. And yet the cities are filled with poisonous smog and lots of the countries and empires the people in the past cared deeply about are either gone or so transformed that they wouldn't be comprehensible in the same way. A lot of people who took great pride in their positions in an aristocracy would be unsettled by the way that aristocracy has decayed. And so lots of things would feel broken or weird or dystopian to a time traveler from the past, even as others felt utopian. I wanted to capture that split when I depicted a future for us as opposed to our present for someone from the past. And there's a parallel also in how you, your characters use or rather don't use gendered language mm-hmm. and consider it to be so, you know, the use of he and she to be too like familiar and sexualized. And right. we can draw parallels to like times in the past, you know, somebody from the 1600s who came to now might look at people speaking to people of other classes or other races and like, oh no, what's, what are you doing? Yeah. And and be weirded out by it. Or, you know, someone from the past might come here and see how we dress and, mm. and be utterly confused and say, why is everyone in their underwear all the time? <laughs> you know, people are going to work with just a shirt and no waistcoat and no over jacket. And what what is the? I don't even know how to interpret any of these things. Um, and so similarly, we look, you know, to them, he and she is archaic like the and thou. Now, we still understand the and thou when we hear it in speech. We know what it invokes because we see it used in media and literature. So we can parse it, but we don't use it. And so just that way in this future, people can parse he and she. They know what it means. They've read Shakespeare. They've read Dickinson. They've read, you know, to them, ancient and archaic literature that uses he and she. They use it in their historical television shows. 
and they see it on the stage and in books so they can understand it just as we understand the and thou, but they don't use it. And so it's weird to them and striking. And when you hear it, it really stands out and make you feel strange, just as if you meet someone saying the and thou on the street, it feels weird. Mm-hmm. That is very cool. Regarding the economics of the post-scarcity society, what sort of resources did you draw on to to work that out? Because I've tried to figure out in the past as a world-building exercise what a post-scarcity society would look like, and I always come up blank. Star Trek has never seemed plausible to me. Mm -hmm. I've never seen it done plausibly before. So I never thought about it in terms of the term post-scarcity. Rather, I thought about it in terms of the idea that the whole expected level of how well off you live has raised for the whole populace. And that's something that's also happened historically. So it's Mm -hmm. true that right now we have a huge wealth gap and we have huge poverty levels. However, being extremely poor in this country still usually means that you own several sets of clothes, and get more clothes frequently. Now, this is because we design our clothes to have to be washed frequently, and our society demands that you have clean clothes all the time. But if you think about that compared to poverty 400 years ago, poverty 400 years ago meant only owning one outfit. And if you think about the volume of food or the breadth of food that is available, even someone who's extremely poor and eating mostly beans and rice and the cheapest meat you can get, that rice is still actually processed to a better quality than rice which existed even for the wealthy a few hundred years ago. So the whole standard of the society has risen. That doesn't mean the people in poverty aren't in a bad way, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to close the wealth gap. But it it means the entire standard has, in a sense, been shifted. And if you look at someone who is in the current middle class and try to compare that to a king from the Middle Ages, I mean, we have homes that are warm in winter and cool in summer, and we eat this enormous, impossibly rich range of actually delicious-tasting, non-rancid food with seasonings from the far corners of the earth, and we travel with impossible speeds in, you know, carriages where we don't have to deal with horse manure, and... If you showed that to a medieval king, I think the majority of them would trade being (laughs) in the Middle Ages for being a secretary today. Also, we don't have all of these diseases. We have such better health. We have most of our teeth through much of our lives. So I thought about this as a future where, A, the wealth gap has closed considerably. This is both because of hard work and social progress on the part of people working for that and because... In the disasters that happened in the late 21st and 22nd centuries, which are hinted at in the course of the, the history, there were, uh, was another very, very terrible historical cataclysm there comparable to World War I and World War II, in which a lot of the poorest population of the world was the victim of global catastrophe in which the wealthy saved themselves and didn't save the poor. So a lot of the poorest populations of the society either didn't survive that cataclysm or 
came through that cataclysm by the active intervention of wealthy people wanting to work with those people, which has then, in some sense, diminished their own separate culture and absorbed them into the wealthy culture. We learn more about this over the four books, and even in book four, where I am now, we're still learning more about exactly what that process was. Uh, But the wealth gap has been closed not only by good things, but also by bad things. But resulting in a society where there is an enormous amount of produce easily generated, people don't have to put in very much labor, they can spend more of their time on hobbies than they do on work, work through automation and other things. You know, you have a programmable tree in your kitchen, which grows most of the produce that you could want, and you program it, you know, next month I want a lot of plums, and then it produces a lot of plums. So... The differences in food quality from being poor are less significant. If everybody as standardly as having a refrigerator has a tree that grows whatever fruit and vegetables you want in your house. So in all of those ways, the wealth gap has narrowed, but also the whole society has become a bit more affluent. There is still a mega wealthy elite compared to the rest, but elitism is not expressed in the same way. It's expressed largely through demonstrations of access to new forms of scarcity which in this modern society is not material scarcity, but a lot of the main scarcity is locational scarcity, right? No matter how easy it is to sort of duplicate wonderful foods at home, any given super famous restaurant only has so many tables and any famous chef can only prepare so many meals in a night. So there are still only X number of people who can have a table at that restaurant on any given day. And there are still only so many people who can physically fit into the Louvre in any given day. And if every single human on earth can go to the Louvre any day they want, there's a long line of a waiting list for your turn to go to the Louvre because only so many thousand people can go per day and there are 10 billion people who may want to go to the Louvre. So the new form of scarcity is being wealthy enough to pay someone who's been on a three-month waiting list to get a ticket to the Louvre $10,000 to give up their ticket to you so that you can go to the Louvre on a whim instead of waiting in line. That's the new aristocratic ostentation. And we have seen the forms of aristocratic ostentation change over time as well, right? In the Middle Ages, you showed off, or in antiquity, you showed off your wealthiness by wearing a toga, which has umpteen zillion yards of fabric, because each yard of fabric is immensely expensive, because we had to have tons of human labor to spin that thread and then weave that fabric. Now that we are have automated fabric production, an expensive garment isn't a garment that uses 20 yards of cloth. It's a garment that was very carefully tailored just for you by an expensive tailor or that was produced in limited quantity by a famous name. So that's our new way of demonstrating elite levels of wealth. And so in the, in this future, elite levels of wealth are demonstrated by possessing either unique objects like a painting or being in a uni- locationally unique space, such as having that table at that restaurant or having your house on the most beautiful of the mountains. Nice. Let's switch gears and talk about the business side of writing. What's something that you've learned about the writing business that you wish you had known when you started? Um, Very minor thing, but when you start getting offers for foreign language translations of your work, you shouldn't necessarily take the very first one because the second one for that language might be from your favoritist publisher in that language. And then you will regret having said yes to the first publisher (laughs) because you are publishing with the other publisher that is not your favoritist publisher. 
Uh, that said, almost all of my, well, all of my foreign language publishers are awesome. It was just, it was in one case where you have a fondness because they put out one of your favorite books 10 years ago and you've always loved that publisher. But I'm sure the other one will do a great job. To Like the Lightning was a hard book to sell. It doesn't fit in any standard genre. It's incredibly difficult to describe, even as we, its release was was looming all of my editors and publishers at tour were going around complaining that this book was impossible to describe. Uh, I remember when Barnes and Noble listed it on their list of books were exciting or coming out soon. And all they had was a picture of the cover and the sentence. We don't know much about this one, but everyone seems to be really excited about it. And I was like, Oh God, I'll hold the other book. <laughs> have a description and mine is just a book. But because they were really excited by the project, they put it out anyway, but it was challenging. So the fact that it didn't fit any known genre, it may have slowed it down slightly, but it didn't impede it, which, you know, I hear a lot of people say, you have to write what sells, you have to write to the publisher and what the publishers need. And that's very rarely good advice. And I talk to other authors about this a lot, but especially if you're writing for a trend, unless you're an incredibly fast writer, that trend is going to have moved on by the time you've finished the book. Mm -hmm. So, you know, much better to write that thing that you authentically are excited to write and then try to sell it. And if it's really great, then even if it's the opposite of every trend ever, the fact that it's really great does draw people's attention. And that's really what happened here was they said, wow, this isn't like anything, but it's great. So, so we have confidence in it. Publishing is also incredibly, incredibly slow in a way that, you know, I remember when I was a tiny kid going to Balticon every year and seeing the Compton Crook getting awarded and thinking, oh, maybe someday it will be me. And, you know, me age 11 imagined that that someday would be when I was 22 or 25, that that is adulthood and that that is when a book would come out. And often friends who have just sent a manuscript to an editor or even just gotten a contract, you know, will ask me, I sent in this a long time ago and they haven't gotten back to me. Should I be worried? And I'll say, how long ago did you send it? And they'll say four months. And I'll say, no, in a year and four months, you should be worried that you haven't heard from this publisher. They're immensely slow. There are actually vaguely sane reasons for this. But every step of the process is slow. So that, you know, a book that I finished the first draft of in 2008 came out in 2016. And that is on the slow side, even for FNSF, but it's slow. It's slow getting a response. It's slow being published after it gets that response. You know, there were several years between when Tor bought the books and when they actually came out. And it was agony waiting. Every moment of waiting was really torturous, especially when I had sent it in, but was waiting for the answer. I would lie awake in bed at night, staring at the ceiling, unable to sleep because I wanted it so much. And that didn't go away until they bought it. But just remembering that you have to be patient and that the fact that you haven't heard back doesn't mean. uh. The other thing that I recommend very highly and that worked for me was write book one of a series that you love and then send it out. And while it's out, write book two. Move on and write book one of another series. Because each series that you write book one of is a new chance to market a new thing. 
having later volumes of a thing where you haven't yet sold the first book does make you better as a writer. And you might so desperately want to tell that story that you have to and it's worth waiting for. But by moving on and writing the first book of one series, which I started in college, and then writing the first book of a second, and then of a third, and then of a fourth, it's the fourth one that was finally good enough. And if I had just kept writing that first series, maybe book four of it would have been as good as these are, but book one still wouldn't have been. So I still Mm -hmm. wouldn't have had anything that I could sell. Whereas starting one, starting another, starting another, I can go back to those now that I'm really much better at writing and someday rewrite them and, and they'll be good. But moving forward is what made me eventually produce something that was the thing that was good enough. How many? How many? Sorry. Uh, how many did I send it to before Tor? Was that the question? Yes. You broke up for a moment. Um, yes. None. I sent it to Tor, and I waited. Wow. Yeah. My agent had it and was looking at shopping it elsewhere. But Tor is a great publisher, and we knew it was going to be long books, and we wanted to sell a four-book series. And there are very few publishers who sell enough volume and have enough financial stability to gamble on that with a first-time novelist. It's a substantial gamble. And Tor, because they're big for a science fiction publisher, and because they have several of the big-selling, mostly epic fantasy series that they can rely on, those assets, let them experiment more. Let them try publishing things that are a little oddball. Let them actually stand by authors who they think are great who aren't quite selling yet in a way that smaller publishers don't have the financial leisure to do. I often talk to people who assume that the bigger publishers are going to be somehow more conservative about what they publish, who assume that Tor is going to want something, is going to be less willing to gamble than what we think of as the smaller, spunky uh, indie publishers. But a small, spunky indie publisher can really be ruined by one or two failures. And Tor isn't going to be ruined by that. And so Tor puts out a lot of things that other people might not be willing to gamble on that don't fit the model of anything, like exactly like these books, which other people who I talked to were nervous about the idea of trying to market something that couldn't be compared to anything or at least couldn't be compared to things you usually compare things to, right? You compare things to The Hunger Games. You compare things to The Handmaid's Tale. You compare things to The Wheel of Time. You don't compare things to Candide when you're marketing a book. It's just not a thing you compare things to. And it's not helpful to answer the question, what's it like to say, well, it's a lot like Candide. That doesn't help. <laughs> just doesn't help your case, no matter how true it is. <laughs> and you can say, well, it's kind of like a cross between Candide and the Book of the New Sun. And people will just sort of stare at you. <laughs> like, those are both good things. They're, they're really good things. <laughs> they're exquisite dark chocolate and a beautiful filet mignon. How do they go together? And what? <laughs> uh, and when you read it. Yes, they do. Yeah, people who have finished the book agree, like, yep, that, that's what it's like. It's like the Book of the New Sun, it's like Candide, it's like it's like Tristram Shandy, and it's like Alfred Bester's The Star's My Destination, and it's just not like things you compare things to. 
so, <laughs> publicists or magazine editors will ask me for a list of what the things are similar to, and never once have they ever compared it to any of the things that I have in all honesty told them that it was similar to, because aren't the things things are similar to, and so it doesn't make any sense. <sighs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yes. But that's what why, is... for all that it's mind-numbingly frustrating dealing with how slow Tor is, it was worth going with them because they could support a project that weird. Also, magically in the last year, Tor has gotten a lot better. Uh, and by magically, I mean Macmillan poured some money into Tor to let them hire some more help staff so that things have actually gotten way more organized and they are moving on things faster. And I, I feel almost like the iceberg is melted and action is finally resuming in the world. And, and I genuinely think the world of science fiction may transform even faster in the next couple of years solely because Tor's gears have finally been lubricated into running <laughs> at a sane speed. So Seven Surrenders is out now. Book three, The Will to Battle, comes out in December. What's next for you after that? The fourth book. So this is a four-book series. And right now, well, right now I'm literally doing this in the middle of a break from the final polish of The Will to Battle, which goes off to tour on Monday. But I'm also working on the first draft of the fourth book, which is a third of the way done. And that's my current project. I'm also, I world build in advance. So I'm also world building the next several series. Uh, the series I start after this one will probably be a Viking mythology based series, which should be fun. Do you have any other convention appearances planned for this year? The big one is Worldcon. I wouldn't miss Helsinki Worldcon even well before I was a Hugo finalist. I was already super excited to go to Helsinki Worldcon. Uh, I've spent lots of time in Italy, France, and England, but I've never gotten to spend time in other parts of Northern Europe. So I'm also going to visit Sweden while I'm in the area. And uh, I do tons and tons of research on Vikings, so it's exciting to be going to that area for the first time after reading the Poetic Edda 80 times. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find your stuff? Where can people find my stuff? So adapalmer.com, I think, is the unified place that lists everything. One thing that's a lot of fun is my blog, exurbe.com, E-X-U-R-B-E.com. I write essays about history, about philosophy, about writing, about gelato, about my travels in Italy, because my research on the Italian Renaissance takes me to Florence and Rome all the time and also lots of other Italian towns. So I blog about architecture and art and the layout of Rome and hilarious things that bad popes did and hilarious things that happened to bad popes and why the bones of St. Thomas Aquinas are purple and other such fun historical tidbits there on the blog. So Exurbe is a lot of fun. It, and adapalmer.com link to each other. Uh, you can also find my music because I compose and perform polyphonic close harmony music uh, with a heavy storytelling element. Um, my most recent project is a pair of CDs of Viking mythology set to music, focusing on the rivalry between Odin and his blood brother Loki with musical settings of the creation myth, of Ragnarok, of the death of Baldur, of the two of them venting their anger at each other. So those are available through my website as well. And then the books are everywhere books are. Awesome. awesome. Ada Palmer, Ada Palmer, thank you so thank much you for, being for being on the Rabbit 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 My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. 
to leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.